Good morning, everybody. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to Acts chapter 5. Our aims in uh, hearing and obeying God's voice to us in the book of Acts uh, are that we might, one, first and foremost, experience more traction for doing life together on mission. Our purpose as a church is to make and multiply disciples of Jesus. Ryan just said that. So we're asking ourselves regularly, um, is, is that happening? Are we, are we experiencing that? Are we experiencing it together? significant thing that we're leaning into here in the book of Acts. Secondly, our, our aim has been to experience more joy. We want more joy in the Holy Spirit. I was just struck this last week in Luke chapter 10, 21, how Jesus, Jesus himself, um, in spite of extraordinary pressures and trials and afflictions, it says he was filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. That is, he, he felt the pleasure of his father, the pleasure that his father feels. That, that notion just never ceases to blow my mind. I, I, I know that I've just barely experienced a taste of it. And I, I try to imagine feeling the very pleasure that God, the father, feels. God feels that pleasure that he feels when he's looking at his son and contemplates the personhood of his son and the remarkable things his son has accomplished, especially in his death. I, I, I just want to feel that pleasure. I, I know that if I tasted of that same pleasure, it would just, it'd be everything to me. So joy, that kind of joy, is what, it's what turned um, everything around and upside down for the Jesus people in those early chapters of the book of Acts. And, and, and so we're asking, is that joy increasing in us, in you, in me? And then thirdly, our, our aim, our third aim is to experience the power of that, that the joy of the Lord would really be our strength, the empowering presence of God. Oh, to experience more and more of that active power and presence of God just manifest among us. So given what that looks like, according to Luke in the book of Acts, how amazing and sweet and satisfying oh, would that be? And then we come to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And this passionate pursuit of God's active presence turns into a pensive pause. And you're going to get what I mean as you see what happens next. So listen, listen to God's word as, as the Lord addresses us in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Here's what it says. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord and the communication to us of his great grace. Let's, let's pray together. a shocking word and, and we need to get our heads around this Lord and we need to feel the weight of it we, we need to feel the depth of it we, we need to be directed to Jesus because of it we're trusting Lord that uh, you have a word a specific word for this group of people for this particular time and, and we, we ask you to give us hearts to receive that word and we're depending on the, the active work of your spirit to not just help us to know the truth but to feel the depth of this truth and that you'd unite us because of it. So be exalted, magnify your great grace Magnify the power, honor, honor your word. Lord, this is the instrument. This is the instrument through which, by which you communicate yourself. Speak, Lord, now in Jesus' name, amen. It, it's been said that um, when God builds a church, Satan adds a chapel. When God builds a church, Satan adds a chapel. In other words, whenever God's presence and activity are manifest, so also is the presence and activity of his adversary, the devil. When God's doing something, the devil's doing something. And so in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, Luke introduces us to a man named Joseph, a.k.a. Barnabas, who is a descendant of the 
priestly order of Israel. He's a wealthy landowner, apparently. <laughs> He's a minister and a mogul. I kind of like that idea. Um, and, uh, and Luke sets him forward as a, a positive example, a very positive example of an individual through whom God was building the church. Now, now, now listen, God raises and um, gives people like Barnabas, pe- people with means, people with generous hearts, people with a unique gift of encouragement to be a great blessing in establishing and strengthening local churches. Every church plant needs a Barnabas. Every church planter needs to have a Barnabas. Emmaus Road Church could use a whole slew of Barnabases. But when God builds a church, Satan adds a chapel. And so for every Barnabas, there is an Ananias. And oftentimes, an Ananias comes with a Sapphira. And in contrast to Barnabas uh, and his generous hearted, this generous hearted encourager are, are this husband and wife team of Ananias and Sapphira who's, who's, as the word says, satanically inspired deception. And their sudden deaths are the attention-grabbing focus of this text. This is a disturbing scene. This text challenges our culturally acceptable notions of the nature and character of God. Imagine, just imagine a death like this one. And Luke clearly means for us to recognize and feel how terribly disturbing this really is. The main point of Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 is embedded in a phrase that Luke repeats twice. In verse 5, it says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And, and this is the phrase, Great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then in verses 10 and 11, And they carried her, that's Sapphira, out, and buried her beside her husband. And here's the phrase, Great fear came came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So, the, so the, the first thing to take notice of here is this great fear. Great fear. Social media is blowing up. Stories trending. Man and his wife drop dead. It's not hard to imagine an event like that being framed and then kind of reframed and reinterpreted Tons of different ways, depending on the sympathies of who's telling the story. But remarkably, there was one united reaction to this, namely, great fear. And given the detail of the story, the great fear was due to the, I think, the assumption that everybody had um, that under these circumstances, the deaths of both Ananias and Sapphira were the result of, the direct result of the active presence and power of God. God did that. Peter spoke a spirit-inspired word and 
they dropped dead on the spot. He didn't, Peter didn't shout. He, he didn't threaten them with the wrath of God. Peter just simply reported something. He reports an impression, a thought that we can assume God had spontaneously brought to his mind. There's no, there's no, there's no indication that you know, the, the word was out. This was a secret. Nobody knew. God discloses their secret sin. And this is a perfect example, right, of, the, of what we understand as the practice of the New Testament gift of prophecy. It, it's, it's one of many varieties of spirit-inspired speech. And the effect of this prophetic word was sudden death. And so under these circumstances, then, it seemed clear to all that the cause of Ananias and Sapphira's deaths was, was God. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now, any Jew who heard of it would, would have felt, they would have felt that the reverberations of of the Old Testament account in Leviticus 10 where the sons of Aaron, Aaron the priest, offered so-called unauthorized fire while performing their duties as worship leaders. That there was a way to approach God, there were ways not to approach God, and worship leaders in particular were supposed to take note of that seriously. And because Aaron's sons did not take note of that seriously, it says in Leviticus chapter 10 verse 2, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Think about that before you take initiative to be part of the worship team. It's also possible the people would have felt the echo effect of 2 Samuel chapter 6 when again, again, it's, it's the people of God. They're making offerings of worship unto the Lord. And here's what it says in 2 Samuel 6 verses 5 to 7. All the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord. It's a celebration, a worship celebration with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Big Big celebration. And when they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And now, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira's offering... Their sacrifice was not accepted. And they too, like the sons of Aaron and like Uzzah, died suddenly and unmistakably as a result of the active and holy presence and power of a holy God. And this, loved ones, is, um, this is what Luke, I believe, means for us to understand as, as the main point of Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 because you see the spirit of God who causes the people of God to experience the very presence and power of God is the Holy Spirit the spirit who causes the people of God to feel 
pleasure in the glory of Jesus and his sin-atoning death that just opens the way into the very presence of God is the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the same Spirit that blessed the church and birthed the church and nourished and fed and gave the growth to the church also, and this is it, this is the main point, also preserved and protected the holiness of the church. That's the point that Luke is driving at. The Holy Spirit preserves the holiness of the church. There's so much at stake. God's presence is at stake. His active presence and power is at stake. And so the Holy Spirit preserves the holiness of the church and acts accordingly. Now, now before we move ahead, it, it, it should be instructive to us that it is in this, this very context where the Spirit, of God is the Spirit of God is asserting the holiness of God. And it's right here, specifically in verse 11, that the people of God, the church of God, is actually for the first time referred to as the church. That is the church, it's the church as generated and built and sustained by God is by definition holy. And if the very nature of the church is defined by the active presence and power of God and God is in fact holy and not to be trifled with, then the church is not first and foremost, an entertainment attraction. Nor is the church, first and foremost, a business establishment aimed at satisfying the felt needs of its consumer-oriented clientele. Rather, the church is first and foremost, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. The church is, it's a group of people chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be, well, listen to Ephesians 4, 1, verse 4. He chose us in him. That is God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that they, that we should be holy and blameless before him to the praise of his glorious grace. And therefore, God's presence among his people, his, his discernible, his manifest presence, his nearness to his to us. It, it demands holiness. Holiness that is a result of and therefore to the praise of God's great and glorious grace. And it's, and it's in that regard that what happens in Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, you know, it, it, it's not out of sync with everything else that's been going on. I mean, it seems that way. It's like, wham, you're going along all this encouragement, like slamming into this wall. No, great grace was upon them all, and it was still on them all. As we noted last week, 
it's clear that Luke is not using that term grace, the word grace, to refer to simply gratitude. You know, it, we're not just saying grace here. It's, it's, we're not just being thankful here. Nor is Luke using the term grace to refer to um, unconditional acceptance. Ananias, if, it, it, this should clear it all up. Ananias and Sapphira were not extended any slack. The judgment of God upon them was swift and it was sudden. But let's also be clear that when God does choose to assert his holiness, it is an act of great grace. When, when secret sins are brought to the light, when hidden sins are exposed, when we feel conviction and tenderheartedness and we feel the fear of God, That is a profound evidence of the manifest presence and power of God. God is giving and heightening regard for his holiness. And the Lord is doing that as a gracious gift to us, something that our sinful hearts, apart from God's great grace, are incapable of, nor dis we're not inclined to do. This is, a, this is God at work when people recognize and see sin and it's brought into the light and they feel the gravity of that. That's a good thing. Now, we may be able, with God's help, to kind of get our heads around the notion that Ananias and Sapphira's death is an actual evidence of God's grace. That is an, a manifestation of God's active presence and power. But that does not diminish, at least for me, perhaps for you also, it doesn't diminish how unsettling it is. How do we reconcile the holiness of God with a gospel of forgiveness? What, what on earth was so heinous about what they did? It's a great question. At first glance, the action of Ananias and Sapphira, it, it, it doesn't seem all that scandalous. They could have done something a lot worse. Like Barnabas, they were obviously well-to-do. You know, just because they had valuable real estate, that was no problem. Like Barnabas, they voluntarily liquidated a portion of their property. Nobody forced them to do that. Like Barnabas, they brought a proportion of their profit and, as it says, laid it at the apostles' feet. They gave. They gave freely. But, according to Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter, inspired by the fullness of the Spirit, says... Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have 
contrived this deed in your heart. You've not lied to men, but to God. So, th th this sin was not like an, an accident, you know? Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't realize how, how serious this was. No, Ananias, he was not naive, nor was he self-deceived. His sin was what theologians would call high-handed. It was intentional. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he plotted it out, calculated it with his wife. And the sin was the lie that sought to gain a reputation for holiness without the sacrifice or the substance of holiness. Ananias and Sapphira lied. They contrived, they conspired together to create an image. They created a reputation for themselves among the people based on falsehood. They aimed, and this, this was demonically inspired because Satan had filled their hearts. They aimed to come off as spiritual people, but they were not spiritual people. They were frauds. They were pious frauds. Their hearts were filled with Satan and therefore their offering was simply an act of deceit in order to gain a position of prominence and influence among the people and loved ones. This happens all the time. Because when our God builds a church, Satan also adds a chapel. It was during the Great Awakening of uh, the early 19th century. A wise pastor by the name of Thomas DeWitt. Is that Dutch? Yay, Dutch. Here's what he said. The church always has more to fear from the enemy within the camp in the subtlety of corrupting and perverting process than from the enemy without, in the boldness of direct opposition. More when he appears in the form of an angel of light than when he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You see, roaring lions, everybody knows, right? They're, they're obviously dangerous requires minimal discernment to recognize the threat of a, you know, big teeth, you know, dangerous beast. However, an angel is by nature and definition a servant. And an angel of light is an attractive servant. They're likable servants. Because they're likable and they're servants and they're helpful and they're useful and we're much more vulnerable to their toxic influence, which makes them much more dangerous. 
to what God is building than someone who is an obvious enemy and is trying to tear everything down. Clearly, you know, just opposing, threatening the progress of everything God's building. So it is worth noting that the verb in Acts chapter 5 verse 3, to keep back, to keep back, it's the same verb used in the Greek translation of Joshua 7 regarding the sin of a man named Achan. I don't know if you remember that story, but Achan took, he kept back, he pilfered some of the devoted things. And so in other words, Ananias and Sapphira are like Achan, whose deceit, their intentional calculating deception threatened to interrupt the progress of the purpose of God. And so God has a word for our church here, our young church. The greatest obstacle to our gaining more traction for doing life together on mission, it's not the threat of losing our religious liberties, though that is grievous. Nor is it the challenge of intense personal uh, need, affliction, you know, vocational challenges, financial challenges, physical challenges, though that is significant. Nor is the greatest obstacle our own temperamental deficiencies or our stalled out emotional development, though that can also serve as an obstacle. Perhaps the greatest obstacle to gaining traction for living life together on mission is the, is the infiltration of wolves in sheep-like clothing. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 warns us about this. Warns us about the one who has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining, and, and, and this is, the, I think this is a key phrase because it so captures Ananias and Sapphira, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Oh man, if we just appear godly, if, if we just give the impression that we're really godly, we're going to get a foothold here. There's, there's going to be some gain. There's going to be some influence. We're going to get something out of this. So the activity of the Spirit is just so prominent here in, in these openings chapters of the book of Acts, so prominent in Acts chapter 4 with spirit-inspired speech and spirit-inspired boldness and spirit-inspired witness and testimony, spirit-inspired generosity, like Christ-like generosity and spirit-inspired unity. It's all summed up in Acts 4, 32 and 33. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Great grace was upon them all. And then you jump over to the other side of Acts 5, 1 to 
11 into verses 12 to 16. And the, active, the activity of the Spirit, it, it's just portrayed, in, again, such a positive, wonderfully powerful way with the continuing ministry of Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons through the people of God by the power of the Spirit of God. All summarized in verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed in other words, just God's just doing all kinds of stuff and the people are, are just living life together on mission. They're not just m- simply making new friends, they're making disciples, Acts 5.14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Ah, but lest we err in our perspective The Spirit is also prominent, just as prominent, maybe even more discernibly prominent in Acts 5, 1 through 11. For when Ananias and Sapphira are suddenly and severely taken, it is yet another manifestation of the grace of God meant to preserve the holiness of God among the people of God in order that they might continue to experience more of the power of God to the end that they might be witnesses and fulfill the purpose of God. So the great question is not (laughs) how could a loving God do this? Or, why did these people die? Or, I mean, is God really this harsh? I can't imagine a God that would be that harsh. Now, the real question is, why don't more people die? Maybe the greater question is, why haven't I died? Habakkuk 2.13 says, You who are of purer eyes than to, to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? Say, the big question is, well, why does God just stand there and sometimes and look at sinners like there's nothing wrong? Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? And and we've been standing today. That's astonishing. Because the wages of sin is death, and there is remaining sin in all of us, you and I. We sin every day. So how is it that I am still standing? Why hasn't the grave digging ministry team carried me out? And perhaps the most significant question of all may be how can I know that I'm safe? Or as the people in the book of Acts beg the question, what shall we do? What are we going to do? 
And that's when we turn to such a great salvation. Because you see, when you feel the guilt of remaining sin, by the grace of God, you feel it. Then, by the grace of God, trust the finished work of Christ for the forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, that is Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses, past, present, future. And when you, you fear that you could or should or might be the object of God's just wrath for your sin, and this is an evidence of God's grace stirring within you, then by God's grace, trust that Jesus' death has satisfied God's wrath against your sin. 1 John 2, 2 says he, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. That means his death satisfies God's wrath. And when you slip and fall again into some ridiculous stupid sin, and, 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 you're, and you're nervous that God might be really ticked off at you for that. That sensitivity is an evidence of His grace. And by His grace, you trust His mercy. You put your trust in His mercy. First Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, in other words, you know, we know what we're doing, or like we don't even know what we're doing, we might live with Him. God's grace is great. And when you recognize that sin still asserts this power over you, ugh, it feels like you could, it could enslave you again in a moment, that feeling is an evidence of God's grace. And by God's grace, then trust Jesus' promise of the presence and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, you will receive power. You will. It's a promise when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when this, this power is upon you, sin will be restrained. It'll be restrained. By God's grace, it'll be restrained. And when you're tempted, and you will be tempted, we are all tempted every day. We are tempted with the notion that Jesus' death for me, for me, it's, it's just not enough. It's not sufficient. And somehow I must now atone for my own sins. I, I have to atone myself. I gotta take things into my own hands. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta somehow make myself feel bad enough. Or I, I've gotta you know, do something so that, so that my sins will be atoned for. By grace, turn and trust Jesus. Titus 3, 4 through 6 says, When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, 
Did we save ourselves? <laughs> no. No, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And when hard things happen, trials, afflictions, painful, sucky problems, and Satan tempts you in those times to think hard thoughts about God, that, that, these, that these hard things are expressions somehow of God's punishment for my sins and my failures, all the things I've done wrong. By grace, trust the finished work of Jesus. Trust the finished work of Jesus. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Those trials are not God's anger. Those trials are God's means of grace servants to fulfill God's purpose. And loved ones, when you know that, when you, when you know that God sees all your daily sins, he sees them all, he sees them all, by grace, trust in Jesus that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And in Jesus, you have been forgiven. Your heavenly Father runs to you when you confess your sins. Your heavenly Father runs to you when you turn back to him. And he reaches out for you and he takes hold of you. And he's, he's kissing you like a long lost child before you can even get the words of confession out of your mouth. That's God's grace. And then finally, and I'm going to close with this, and we're going to sing of this great grace. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Because of God's great grace, because of Christ alone, we have confidence. We have confidence, not fear, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And so, so there is a, there's a right fear. There's a kind of fear felt by people who have been made right with God in the death of the Son of God. And it is a, it's a joyful fear. Psalm 2 verse 11 says, Rejoice, with trembling. 
That's the kind of fear that we trust the Lord would cause to come upon all of us who are trusting Christ. Joyful trembling. That we would rejoice with trembling that we are safe in God's presence through through Jesus. That we would rejoice with trembling that the Spirit of God, the living God, is filling our hearts. That's a, that's a you think about that. The, the spirit of a holy God is in me. <sighs> Rejoice with trembling then when God uncovers sin and stirs up conviction of sin and grants humble repentance over sin. Rejoice. Rejoice with trembling that God is maintaining his active presence among us in the church when he is asserting his holiness. He is protecting. He is preserving. He's preserving and enlivening the vibrancy and the witness of the church when he asserts his holiness. And rejoice with trembling at how God in his wisdom and in his goodness and in his love has made a way for us to to actually draw near to him on the merits of another. How, How sweet the reality and the experience of saving grace. Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Christ died for me. Let's pray. And now, since, Lord, we have a great high priest. There's a great high priest over the house of God, over the church, over the people of God. It's on account of this great high priest that we have that we may draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and without fear, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is something to rejoice over, to be filled with joy over. This is something to feel pleasure in. God, you feel pleasure infinite pleasure in this astonishing work that you have done through your son. May we feel deeply that same pleasure by your grace according to the work of the Holy Spirit among us, in us, through us, right now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Stand together.